Turn with me then to Galatians chapter 1. We'll read one more time from the entire chapter with our text at verse 10. Next week, Lord willing, our text will be from verse 11 of chapter 1 to verse 10 of chapter 2. But first we'll read Galatians 1. A week ago Friday, I was blessed and privileged to install my brother-in-law, Reverend Bazuyan, in his new charge in the Sheffield congregation, the Zion URC of Sheffield. And I used this text, verse 10, as that passage for that service. If you're intrigued as to how a sermon changes when you preach it in different circumstances, you're welcome to listen to it off of their website after hearing today's message and to compare the two. But first we'll listen. Galatians chapter 1 at verse 1. Hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than that or, or other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that I'm writing, what I'm writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report that the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. And again, verse 10, our text Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. May he add his blessing to this word.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, on any given day, as we interact with the world around us, with the people that we come into contact with, we have this tendency and this need to try and anticipate or guess what their motivation is, what they're about, what are they trying to get done, what are they trying to get us to do. We hear it from our children. A a child offers a sarcastic reply, and we recognize immediately that, of course, their words mean the exact opposite of what they're saying. If you wrote their words on a piece of paper and gave them to somebody, they would think, well, that sentence means exactly what it says. But if you hear it, if you hear it in the context of the conversation, you can guess what the actual motivation, the meaning behind those words actually is. And it's not only children that do that. We do that too. Maybe we're in retail. Maybe we are having a long, busy, difficult day. We're serving a customer who is particularly uh, unkind or impolite. And outwardly, we appear very pleasant and we appear very polite. But they don't know what's going on behind our eyes. They don't know what's going on in our mind. Because in our mind, we're thinking all sorts of ill things about them. And, and as a result, we know that at least in our own experience, what we look like and what we feel like are often two different things. And that being the case, we assume other people are the same way. That is, what people are saying to us isn't really what they mean. What people are trying to get from us isn't really what they want. And so we begin to try and discern what's behind them. What's behind their motivation? What's the real truth in all of this? And, and we do that not just because we have that experience ourselves, but because we live in a culture that has taught us to do that. I used to get very regularly emails from one of the princes of Ethiopia who wanted to give me money. And very quickly you learn, of course, that that's a scam. In fact, more and more don't we discover these sorts of scams, these emails that get sent to us that you see and you go, wait a second, I'm not touching that one because that one's definitely not good. The world in which we live wants to separate us from our money. Salesmen, for example, can have a hard time trying to win the favor of those they're doing business with, especially those that are required to do cold calls. Those who might call you around supper time, I'm sure if you're like us, you hang that phone up fairly quickly. Salesmen are, distrust, are distrusted rather instinctively in our culture precisely for this reason. They act like our friend, but we know that they're not. We know that behind their uh, appearance is a different motive. And we struggle with that in, in our relationship with salesmen, with police officers, with government officials. It is easy for us, it's increasingly easy for us to assume that behind the actions of those in power is a very different and nefarious agenda, that what they're doing is not at all what they're telling us they're doing, that they're doing something altogether different. Now as Christians, we have a way of making sense of this. We know why the world is this way. We know that selfishness, for example, lies at the very heart of sin. So that we know everyone we run into, even ourselves, of course, when we look in the mirror in the morning, struggle with the thing, with the problem of selfishness. And so when I want to get something, when I want something to make my life better, I'm going to act in a way that might try and get that, which is a bit dishonest. And we know that because sin is so prevalent in everyone's life and that 
the tools of sin are deception and dishonesty, that therefore we have to always be on our guard. We always have to be questioning things. We always have to wonder, what is it that this person is trying to tell me? But what if in the end, the deception we're wrestling with is not the one we think we are? What if all of that is simply the devil's attempt to keep us from listening to the good news of the gospel. That seems to be at least something of what was happening in Galatia. Paul says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? It's a bit of a strange question for a pastor to ask, don't you think? It's a strange thing for a minister to say. Do you think I'm trying to make you happy? Do you think I'm trying to please you? Apparently, that was an accusation that was leveled against Paul. That is, that he was this kind of deceptive salesman, that he would say nice things in order to separate you from money, from your attention, from your... He wanted to build his own kingdom, his own community. He wanted to be the leader of a grand new people. And so the enemies of Paul, when they would come in behind, he would start a ministry and he would plant churches and then he would move on to the next place, to the next field. And he would leave behind preachers and elders to minister to God's people. And invariably as Paul left, then these false teachers would come in behind him and they would start sowing seeds of dishonesty and and of, of heresy in the hearts and the minds of the church. The devil didn't want these Christians to be established in the faith, to be, uh, to be strong in the Lord, to be rooted in His Word. And so he would be, come along with his leaders, his teachers, and bring lies into uh, the community. And one of the lies they would spread was, don't listen to Paul. Paul doesn't have your best interest at heart. Paul doesn't like blessing you. Paul's just interested in your money. He just wants to live a cushy life. He's, how much money did you guys raise for him? How much did you give him? See, you see what I'm, I'm just saying. Look, the, follow the money. The devil uses that ploy in order to, to, to undercut and undermine the ministry of the gospel. And Paul now responds with some strong words. Paul now says, am I trying, you think I'm trying to do that? And those words are born out of what he had just said in the verses previous, what we saw last time when we were in Galatians. Words that were very, very hard. Not only did he say that anyone who preaches a gospel different than the one he preaches must be, is eternally condemned, is damned to everlasting judgment. Now that's a harsh statement already. But he said to these Galatian Christians themselves, I can't believe you've deserted God. That's what he said, isn't it? I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. It was God who had called them by the grace of Christ. And so Paul writes to this people, stands before them, you might say, in the pulpit, figuratively speaking, and says to the congregation, I can't believe you no longer follow the Lord. That's a tough word to hear. That is a hard word to hear. And it's why Paul then responds by saying, do you think I'm trying to please you now? Do you think that I'm trying to do things that will make you happy with me? That will make you so pleased with me that you will do whatever I say? That you will follow me wherever I go? That I could be the Pied Piper of this community? 
Paul says, absolutely not. I am not here to please you. Now, that's a strange thing to say, given that Paul does like to please people. In fact, Paul insists that that's what people ought to do. Paul was convinced, and he taught in his other letters, the obligation of all men to live in pleasing ways. Listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, at verse 19 to verse 23. He says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Oh yes, Paul very much understood that he was to be pleasing, winsome, that he was to minister in a way that was attractive to the people he ministered to. And he thinks the same for the church, doesn't he? In Romans 12 at verse 18, we'll get there eventually in our Lord's Supper series. He says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul understood the call of Christ in his life to be a winsome, to be a, 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 a compelling leader. He knew that he couldn't be offensive, that he couldn't be rude, that he couldn't be impolite, but that he was to be a person, a minister of the gospel who was preaching the Word of God to the people in a way that would draw them, that would seek to lure them in, you might say, into the light of Christ and into the hope of salvation. Indeed, that was his heart's desire, that everybody would know Christ and, uh, and His eternal grace. But what Paul would never do was, was submit the gospel to this need to please people. Paul would never say, I'm going to change the gospel. I'm going to take away its rough edges in order to make you more comfortable. Absolutely not. It's something we are sometimes, I think, tempted to do, especially in our politically correct age. We want to talk to our neighbors. We want to talk to others that are uh, unbelieving, and we want to speak to them about the gospel. But we know that in that gospel is some very hard things. Condemnation, sin, judgment. If you're talking to somebody in your community that is same-sex attracted, one of the LGBTQ uh, members, you know what the Word of God says concerning their particular sin. You know what God says about all sin. And so you know that if you say something, if you stand and declare that the Lord condemns such things, that you are going to face significant pushback. And you want absolutely to make sure that you're heard right. Of course you want to recognize that same-sex attracted people are no worse than any other sinner that is in the need of the Gospels. No worse than any of us who is in need of the gospel. Indeed, we can with Paul, must with Paul, say of all sinners, I'm the worst. But you understand that culturally, there are certain things we may not say as Christians. 
because our society is so against them that anyone who hears us will think that we are misogynistic and all the rest. And so we want to soften the ministry, the Gospel of grace. We have that as people, as families, as parents with our children, especially with our children that may be struggling and straying from the faith. We want to do everything to make it pleasing to them. We want to do everything to make them win, or to win them rather, for the gospel. And that's an absolutely uh, precious and, and, and significant motivation we should all share as parents in our hearts and our lives. But there can come a time when the, when the, the desire to bless our child becomes greater than our desire to present the gospel. We have an eye on our fellow man, but our fellow man becomes the governing motive of our ministry. The praise of men becomes the thing that motivates us. I think particularly in this respect of Ed Welch's excellent little book, When, God, when People Are Big and God Is Small. In that book he writes, among other things, that fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. We do that sometimes, don't we? We say, oh, I don't care what anybody thinks. Ed Welch says, you better check for a pulse if somebody says that because they're probably dead. We ought to recognize that we do have this tendency as believers within this world, even within the context of our own congregation, to put the the praise of men above the praise of God. That is a challenge we all face. And it's a challenge. It really is a complicated challenge. It's not easy. Because again, as Paul reminds us, we are to be winsome. We are to be gracious. We are to be polite. The offense should never come from us in terms of our personality or our character. But the truth is the offense will come because the gospel is offensive. And we must never submit the gospel or sublimate the gospel under the desire for others to love us. You think of our friends. Maybe we're hanging out with our friends. Maybe we're hanging out with them last night and they were doing things we know were wrong. Mom and dad have told us they're wrong. But we don't want to say, no, this is wrong. We don't want to stand with the gospel in that moment and say, this is not God. Well, God doesn't want us doing this, guys. Because we know that our friends aren't going to be happy with us. They're going to ostracize us. We're going to lose our friends. We know that as, 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 as we get older, we know that throughout all of our lives. And, and again, don't, don't misunderstand. Yes, you have to be very careful and you have to be very winsome and you have to be very gracious in the way that you minister the gospel to others. But you know and I know that there comes this moment where you're, you're faced with the challenge. You either stand or you bend. You either say, I'm with Christ or you say, I'm with you. Our world is constantly, constantly pushing us to surrender, to give up more ground, to stop resting in grace. If pleasing others becomes your governing motive as a Christian, you will either cease to be one or eventually will become so angry that you cannot stand the idol you are worshiping. Because that is really what the issue is. It's idolatry. Paul puts his finger on in, these verses, in this verse. Who rules our lives? Who governs our words, our thoughts, our actions? Is it man or is it the living God? The living God calls you to be gracious, calls you to be kind. But are you being governed by the desire to please men or by the desire to please God? 
Paul's concern in his ministry was that he please Christ. And he sees the attack of his enemies who are saying that he's this kind of a guy that, that really is just saying nice things in order to get money from you. He sees it as an, an assault, an attack on the very integrity of the gospel message. And that for Paul was the great priority. He wanted everyone to hear the good news. That's why he says what he says in the second half of our text. In the first half, he asks those rhetorical questions. He talks about whether or not he's acting in a way that is pleasing to men. And then he asks, if I were still pleasing, or then he says, if I were still pleasing or trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. A servant of Christ. That's a a note, by the way, that he had already struck uh, at the beginning of this letter when he describes himself as belonging to Christ. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father and who raised him from the dead. Uh, Paul has said, look, I belong to Christ. I belong. He has purchased me. I am his servant. I belong to him body and soul. It's a truth that he's going, we'll see that in the next message when we go through those verses that follow in which he describes how it is that he came to the position he was in, to being an apostle. When he, when he details for us how it is that he became the apostle Paul, then he will show us that it is because Christ claimed him, because Christ worked a powerful work in his life, because Christ redeemed him. God had sent him apart from birth, he says, And so when Paul details all of his story of of how the Lord brought him to salvation, it is a story of what God has done, of what Christ has done, and how fully and completely uh, belonging to Christ Paul truly is. And indeed, this is a word that Paul repeats uh, over and over again. The beginning of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, Paul describes himself as a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1, he says it again. There he writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Indeed, if you read Colossians 1, at the verses 24 and 20 to 26, you hear that this is in fact the defining reality of Paul's ministry. He says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to, the, to present you to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is being disclosed to the saints. Paul says, I'm a servant to the churches of the gospel of the grace of God. Indeed, that's the vital key to understanding the ministry of Paul. We are not all Paul. None of us is Paul at all. Paul is only Paul. There were only uh, 13 apostles, and each one of them was unique in their authority and ministry. And Paul certainly, as the preacher to the Gentiles, was profoundly unique. So we're not Paul. We don't have Paul's authority. We don't have Paul's calling or responsibility. But Paul did. Paul understood that he was claimed and commanded by God in Jesus Christ. And he was claimed and commanded to do one thing, and that was to preach the gospel. Listen to how the Lord describes that in Acts chapter 9 when he converts Paul on the road to Damascus. And when he says to uh, Ananias in verse 15, 
go to this man. You remember Ananias had to go see Paul, and he really didn't want to because Paul was a persecutor of the Jew or persecutor of the church. And so Ananias was a little bit afraid that that wasn't going to go well. And the Lord says, "Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the kings and their or before the Gentiles and their kings, and before the people of Israel." Or listen to what he says in Galatians 2, just in the next chapter at verse 7. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel uh, to the Jew or to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. Or consider 1 Corinthians 9 again, this time at verse 16, as we just read it. Listen to what he says about his ministry. He says, Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The gospel of salvation, the gospel of grace, the gospel of forgiveness of sins, the gospel of God's mercy. That's what Paul, that's the entire, you want to understand Paul, there you have it. Paul preached Christ and Him crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and an offense to the Gentiles, but to those who are being saved, the power of God. Paul was a preacher of the good news because Christ claimed him and commanded him. Now, Paul did a lot more than that. He really did. He was a pastor as well. He ministered to the needs of God's people. He was a praying apostle. The the apostles, you'll remember, placed great emphasis on prayer. They they said, uh, you'll remember in Acts, when the ministry to the widows was becoming too much for them, they gave that ministry to the deacons so that they could be devoted to prayer and preaching. Paul was a man of great prayer. You read his letters, you cannot help but be impressed by that. How often he prays for the churches and the ways in which he prays for the churches. Paul regularly, daily was in prayer on behalf of God's people. And Paul also for a time would work. There were times when Paul would work in his tent making ministry. He was a tent maker. And so he could take his tools and he could uh, begin his work and he could sell uh, tents and and various uh, things of that nature in order to fund his ministry. Sometimes he even did that precisely because he didn't want the church to support him. It wasn't that they couldn't. It wasn't that they didn't have the resources to do it. But he didn't want their help because he knew the accusation would come that he was only ministering to them for the money. And so he would say, well, I'm going to tent make in order to fund my ministry so that none of you can claim that I'm doing this for personal gain. So there was a lot of things that the Apostle Paul did. He pastored, he prayed, he worked, but he did it all with this singular focus in mind that he wanted to preach the gospel. He worked in his tent making so that he could stand before God's people and tell them the good news. He pastored to them so that they would hear the good news of the gospel. He prayed that they might know the good news of the gospel. This was the ministry of the Apostle Paul. This is what Paul understood as a servant of Christ he was to do. And to be a faithful servant of Christ meant that he had to preach the good news. Not that he did it perfectly. Not that he did it uh, in a way that, that kept everybody happy. In fact, he understood that if he wasn't offending people, if he wasn't stepping on people's toes, he wasn't being faithful But Paul said, this is what it means to be a servant of Christ. It means to discern the claim and the command of Christ in my life and to offer myself in total devotion to Him. Now that was a challenging thing to do, make no mistake. 
That is a scary thing to do. To say, I'm going to give my life wholly and completely to Christ. We tend to get a little bit afraid of that when preachers start talking about these sorts of things because we imagine that that might mean we'll have to sell our business and go into missions in Africa somewhere. And maybe we should. Maybe that's what the Lord's calling us to do. And we should never resist that if the Lord's calling us, if the Lord's claiming us and commanding us, we ought to surrender everything in service to Him. There is no greater master, there is no greater Lord to serve, and there is no greater message to share with the world than the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. To be able to detail how gloriously and wonderfully God has accomplished all things in the history of the world, bringing to, 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 to light the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, That ought to be for all of us a joy and a privilege to share. There is no greater word that we can share than this. But what if the call to surrender, what if the call to give our lives wholly and completely, gratefully and quickly to the Lord also includes our parenting, also includes our going to the job site, also includes our hanging out with our friends, also includes the relationships we pursue, also includes the ministry opportunities that are presented to us. You think about uh, uh, the opportunity at River of Life, for example. There's an opportunity to serve. Now, that's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require time. It's going to require resources. Are we willing to follow Christ in that opportunity? Are we willing to say, Lord, you have claimed me. I belong to you. Where would you have me serve? And if he says on the job site, then that's where you serve as a Christian, as one who has been claimed by Christ. You are diligent in your task. You're honest in your work. You are faithful in all that you do. You are trustworthy. Your language, your, your, the stories you tell, the jokes you speak of, all of that, that becomes your witness, your work your way of showing the world the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ, that you are a good servant of Christ. I am here not because I can make money, but I am here because I belong to the Lord. Now that's going to create trouble. That's going to create trouble for you. I can assure you that that will cause you grief because the ministry always does. The gospel always does. Paul knew this. Paul understood the offense of the gospel more keenly than any of us. He suffered so much for the gospel, physically and emotionally and spiritually. And he suffered because he was this bright light in the midst of a dark world. You know what it's like when somebody comes in or turns on the light? Sometimes we do that with our kids or have done that with our kids when they were younger and it was time to get up for school and so we'd come into their room and flick the light on. And that was never a pleasant way to wake up. None of them liked it. That bright light suddenly searing your eyes, it was not easy. And you would say, just shut it off, shut it off. Well, the world does the same thing to us. They don't like the gospel. They don't like the good news of grace in Jesus Christ. As strange as that may seem to us, who are so moved and encouraged and and built up by it, the truth is, The world does not like it. It pierces the darkness of their hearts. It exposes the truth of their sin. It causes them to feel badly about themselves. And there's nothing worse in our culture today than having to feel bad about yourself. That's never allowed. You should never make somebody feel bad about themselves. Well, to do that, we have to stop being Christians. Because when the light of Christ shines through us into the darkness of this world, people will be offended. 
People will also be saved. People will also come to salvation in Jesus Christ. But people will also be, be, be offended. That's why Paul had to be so strong in his language in this text. Precisely because he had offended so many with the good news of the gospel. The devil wasn't happy with him. The world wasn't happy with him. They didn't want Paul's ministry to be successful. They didn't want people to see the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. They didn't want to be moved by the love of God. They didn't want people to stand in wonder and to worship the Lord for what he'd done. They wanted people to live in darkness, to live in the ignorance of sin, to live in the suffering and sorrow of rebellion against God. And the same is true this day. There's no, that's going to be true for us as well. And we understand that, we sense that, we recognize that, but we must resist it. We are servants of Christ. We belong to the Lord. And belonging to the Lord means we need to testify, we need to share the good news of the gospel with others. People need to know that we're Christians. Maybe that's a simple test that we can use in application of this passage. Do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? Do they know where you go to church? Do they know that you hold Christ in highest of esteems? Your coworkers, your friends, people on your sports team, hockey teams, or soccer teams, or anything else. In your classroom, in your schooling. Do they know that you love Jesus Christ? That you are a servant of Christ? That you will do anything except deny Him? Paul had to take a tough stand in this text. In this verse, he had to take a tough stand against the Galatian Christians. But he did it because he was convinced this is what Christ called him to do. Because Christ called him to defend the good news of the gospel, to be a preacher of the gospel of grace. We're not all Paul. None of us is Paul. We're not in the position he is in. None of us is in the position of preacher, save but one. That's okay. We're all Christians. We're all still called to be witnesses, to be lights to the world. We're all still called to testify to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And in an increasingly oppositional world, that's hard. But are we committed to do it? Are we ready to give ourselves as servants to Christ? Do the people around us know this one loves Jesus? Let's ask the Lord to help us do that in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, your word is challenging. It is difficult for us. We acknowledge that Lord, it's, it's easier to just be quiet, uh, to just fly under the radar, because we know that in our society and in our culture, um, to, to stand out is to make ourselves objects of ridicule and objects of scorn and to cause um, unrest in our communities. We sometimes feel that even, Lord, within our own uh, families, some of us, Lord, know the pain and the sorrow of separation because we stand for Christ. Those of us, Lord, who have come to the faith and who uh, love to serve the Lord, and we seek to be gracious and kind, but for one reason or another, and we know why it is, our families, our unbelieving families, they can get offended at us. They can think we're holy rulers, that we're better than them, and no matter what we say about it, it doesn't seem to make a difference. And that's hard, Lord. That's hard for all of us. And we want to um, be faithful. We want to be winsome. We want to be gracious, but we want to be faithful. And so we pray that you would help us to be Faithful again today, help us to this week recognize who we are, that we are servants of yours, and that as we go into this week, we want others to see that too. Help us to be winsome in the way that we speak it, but bold also 
that we would say to the world, I belong to Christ and He to me and help us to stand fast in that. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.